start us. Okay, Coffee and Theology, Wednesday, April 13th at 8.08. It's every week, even when I'm doing it. 8.08 a.m. <clears throat> if you have not been listening to the past recordings, we almost always start at 8.08 a.m. Um, so that's just a little funny tidbit to all of us who are on here. Unplanned. And unplanned, absolutely. So Coffee and Theology during Holy Week. So we have just been talking about um, Holy Week leading up to Good Friday, what it meant, the Passover meal, getting rid of anything that is um, has yeast in the house and what that means. And Bob was, was starting to riff on that. And so we wanted to get the recording going so that we could get all that down and have a discussion about it. So Bob set us up again. Talk about um, that that we were just talking about. So in peace. This yes. is the interesting thing. When it's part of what uh, I think everybody here is on daily bread. So I will get back to you. I promise lost in translation. And I, and I am going somewhere with Sansara, um, the new planet there. It, I know it, you probably like what the hell does this have to do with, the Bible and how you interpret the Bible and the translations and the obfuscations in the translations and yada, yada, yada that you're always blabbing about. And then then you start a book and you're telling us about some sci-fi planet called Sensara. But there's a reason for all that, I promise. Um, I love sci-fi. So the important thing that, again, I'm trying to point out um, is is two things when you're looking at the Bible and when you're looking at, and again, this is specifically talking, I'm going to bring it real quickly into this Holy Week and, and um, the week leading up to Jesus's, uh, the, the Last Supper and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and what it means, because there has been a separation and a forgetfulness that has been going on for 2,000 years in the church, in the teachings of the church, and the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees is, it's not even that a little bit, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's almost as if now it's, there might be a little bit of flour in this giant lump of yeast that has become modern theology, and I'm not exaggerating, because most of what is being taught in theological schools around the world and from pulpits everywhere around the world in, in pretty much every denomination is pure yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It has nothing to do with the teachings of Christ nor the kingdom of God. And I know that sounds, again, extreme, but again, that's what I'm doing in the book Lost in Translation is explaining and showing what originally, what the whole lead up to the week of the Passover had been because it was no small thing that God had done and that it happened. This celebrating of the Passover was an ancient hundreds of years. They'd been doing this. Okay. And that is part of what the, our theology is supposed to be resting on. 
you have to have the backstory. Again, as I said a few weeks ago, a quote from a gentleman that says, if you, if you don't know your history, you have no chance of knowing who you are. And uh, this was not only did Jesus show this, the gospel writer showed it. John, the, the, in the gospel of John, it's shown in an extreme case where the, again, and I agree with, there's a, there's a, um, a priest uh, that teaches theology, and I don't agree, again, I'm going to use this name, and I know I'm going to make a lot of people on here possibly happy, but there's going to be other people who might listen that are like, okay, I'm going to turn him off because he's mentioning Richard Rohr. I don't agree with everything Richard Rohr teaches, but there's some things that he hits the nail right on the head, and this is one of them. That is one of the best things I've ever heard come out of his mouth is when he talks about, in the Gospel of John, at the crucifixion of Jesus, and he says... There was Mary and there was the disciple that Je whom Jesus loved, which people say that's John. No, it's actually not. It's mentioning this disciple who Jesus loved metaphorically. And so it can be, it's intended to be you as a follower of Christ. You need to meet Jesus. You need to stand at the foot of the cross and observe exactly what's going on. But in the other gospels, they say that everyone fled. And so again, it's not that these people are lying. The same thing as at the, at, the, at the tomb of Jesus. Literally all four gospels completely disagree. One says there's one man, one says there's two men, one says there's one angel, and one says there's two angels. Which is it? And they say that they're inside the tomb, they're outside the tomb, they spoke to this person, they spoke to that person. And it's, some of them are the same people with different numbers of these either angels or men talk. The reason is because people keep trying to make these a history book. The Bible's not a history book. It's not. It's not a science journal. That's the stupidest thing. That's lies that have, that's part of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees that I'm talking about. These are things that modern people have done and tried to, ways of interpreting the Bible. And if you go there with those kind of interpretations that this is a science book, or this is a factual book, this is a history book, then you're going to do horrible damage and you'll never understand and you'll never unravel what the Bible is talking about ever. That's why, that's why we have 53,000 denominations because that's what they've been trying to do. They're trying to make sense of something logically when that's never the way it was looked at in that day, the scriptures. And it was certainly never the way that it was intended and why it was written. Because again, Apologists try, these people who try and argue that the Bible is, is, um, has no flaws in it, um, they, can't, they, they have to jump through so many circles, and it's impossible to do that. I can show so many different things like that. And so then that means, then how do we look at it? Well, we look at it the way you look at a, a mystic book. These are, and, and listen to the one who said what it's for, Jesus. Jesus told us exactly what it is. You, he said of the Pharisees, you study the scriptures thinking that they, these scriptures, have the magic, have a formula for how to get eternal life. 
And then he, the next sentence is, and so he's saying, and that's incorrect. Then the next sentence is, but their sole purpose is to point to me. And you refuse to come to me. And also he said of his disciples, why do you keep speaking to the people in parables? And Jesus says in the Greek, it says, oh, great question. Let me clarify, if ever words are coming out of my mouth, I never speak. Forget about to the crowds, because they said, to the crowds you say one thing, to us you say something seemingly different. You seem to speak to us more plainly than them. Why are you keeping them in the dark? And why are you speaking to us? Why won't you? And then we don't even understand half of this stuff. He goes, as intended, it's to keep the scripture that says, you will always be hearing and never understanding. And again, that bothered me for years. I thought, wait a minute, Jesus, you're saying you're doing this on purpose? You're obfuscating the truth. You are obfuscating. You're speaking in riddles on purpose so that we'll ever be hearing and never understanding. And, and I heard the Spirit kept telling me, yes, yes, keep going down that trail. What does it mean? Then he said, Jesus says, so you... You've asked me about this particular riddle. Let me explain it, because in my explaining it gives you the secret for unraveling all of the rest of the parables. And he means by that not just his parables in the Bible, but the Bible itself. Because when Jesus says, if ever, great question, why do I speak in parables out there? He says, no, 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 no. Let's clarify Let's get this straight once and for all. If ever I'm speaking, I'm always only speaking in parable. So that means that, and we see in Jesus, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when the Spirit, the Father, the Spirit of the Father is moving along the men who wrote the Bible, they were also all speaking in mysteries, in parables that are hidden that we cannot in our brain logic out. It's an impossible task. You cannot do it. That's why there's 53,000 denominations and growing because they're all trying to just logic it out. And they're only seeing bits and pieces. As Paul said, even the prophets only saw in bits and pieces. And that through a mirror dimly, like looking over their shoulder in a dirty, what they had at that time, tarnished brass, trying to see something in a dark shadow behind them. You can't do that. But that's what the Bible even is. So what did Jesus say? Here's how it works. And then there's a guy, I have a book here that said, oh, it's the parable of the sower sowing the seed. That's the key. And so if you take that and understand it, then you can use it as the key to unlock the rest. Almost. <laughs> but he misses the point. Because Jesus said, look, you've, he's it's showing the juxtaposition between the Pharisees who are full of yeast who go to the scriptures and think that they can intuit and logic out directly from the scriptures and get life and get eternal. The life of the Anion is what it says. That means the life of the age, this kingdom of God kind of uh, life that had been prophesied was coming. But we, it's translated eternal life, which is horrible because then we think of it means getting to a free ticket out of hell and into heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about how are we going to, how do we rule during the time of when Christ, the Messiah, the seed promised comes, we want to be part of that. 
And that is what Jesus talked about in the kingdom of God. We call it today. It's supposed to be what Christianity is. We're the kings, kingly priests who are supposed to be ruling and reigning on the earth, sharing the gospel of Jesus, showing what the father's like and having channeling the father. So the in, way that he said that you interpret it is it's all mystery. It's all parable. It's all hidden, but it's all done so for a reason. And to the Pharisees, he says, it points to me because I, I am the encryption. I'm the, de or I'm sorry, I'm the decryption. I'm the decryption key, me. I, I am truth. I'm the way. I'm the life. No one sees what the Father's like except through me. So you disciples see in juxtaposition, they did it right. Because he said to the, the, the Pharisees, and you refuse to come to me to get the truth of, and, and let me show you what it all means. Let me, un, let me decrypt the encrypted. Let me reveal the hidden. It's me. I give you the interpretation. So this is exactly then what the disciples, he does to the disciples. Here, here, I'll give you an example. Here's the first story. This is now, watch, I'm going to give you, I'm going to, I'm going to explain it to you. <laughs> you got some explaining to do, and that's what he does. He interprets it and gives them as the author, the one who wrote it and the one who spoke it and then it was written down. Then he says, now this is how you interpret it. But then we don't take that and go, now I, now I don't need you, Jesus. I got that key and then I go and I unlock. No, 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 no. It's intended that every parable, every story throughout scripture, he does it. And in fact, in his risenness, when he's risen, what does he do to the, those on the road to Emmaus? And as he walked with them, he showed them through all the scriptures, beginning in the Torah and going through the Psalms, and or, I'm sorry, starting in the Torah, and showed them how the Messiah must die and suffer. See, he said, it points to me. I'm the one who gives the interpretation. And here, the first thing he's doing when he's the risen Christ that we write that is written in there is him explaining how he, it was all about him. It's all hidden and he's doing the explaining. And then he says, now it's good that I go away because I'm going to send the spirit. And now he's going to do what I've been doing. He's going to be giving you the explanation for what it means. However, within that context, we have some other things that are also said that we have to also use as our proper interpretation. And this is where I come back to what Roar said. He said that the reason that this gospel writer writes about Mary and the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is intended to be us. It's never called John. It's always this disciple whom Jesus loved, and he's in these beautiful places, leaning on the breast of Jesus. Jesus tells him he's the only one who he reveals who the betrayer is directly because he knows that the disciple whom he loves is like him. It's supposed to be, see, it's a picture of us. Knowing Christ, listening to Christ, Christ will show us things. But did you notice John, or I'm sorry, this disciple whom Jesus loved, doesn't blather it. Guys, Jesus just said, it's Judas. He's the betrayer. He goes along in complicity, helping Jesus to cover the tracks of the betrayer and making him the only one that nobody has their eyes on as the possible betrayer because Jesus honors him as the guest of honor the very thing that they were all like, who's going to be at your right hand? That was the discussion for the, the whole way there, right? And Jesus, it says, it's the one whom I dip the sop. 
And he, that's what he tells John, but he doesn't, I'm sorry, the disciple whom Jesus loved, but he doesn't tell anybody else. And so the disciple whom Jesus loves recognizes, oh, he's showing me who the betrayer is. And yet to everybody else, he's making him look like there's no way he's the only one exempt from possibly being the betrayer. Because he's now said he's going to be the one sitting at my right hand. And I believe that's exactly where Judas is going to be. See, that's, a whole, that's in my book, The Betrayers. What does God do with every betrayer? They, he, he elevates them. And it's interesting because he who much is forgiven loves much, has a deeper understanding and gets to rule and reign at a higher level. So Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, I believe in the coming kingdom, will be sitting at the right hand of Jesus, who's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Um, so what does Richard Rohr's statement woman mother of jesus it's it's pictured behold your son son behold your mother this word again means behold means to look at in awe appreciation and never forget so he says to the disciple whom jesus loved that's according to roar and i can i 100 agree with him on this it's the church it's us Behold your mother. In other words, behold, it has in, in implicit with it to st mean, means to stand in awe and wonder and go, wow, and therefore honor. And it's not about Mary worship. That's where, again, other people have taken it and looked at it, the literal interpretation, and then elevated Mary and said, oh, we're supposed to stand in awe of Mary. Well, she re what does she represent? It's a metaphor. You have to ask Jesus, and Jesus will tell you. It's Judaism. It's all the things that led up to your, it's remembering your history so you know who you are and therefore how to properly in in interpolate the scriptures. I'm going to explain them to you, but know that you. one of the ways you'll know that it is it is the spirit that is my spirit of the spirit of 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 God within you that's giving you the proper interpretation is it's going to totally line up with everything that has been said before in all the pictures, like the high priest function, the temple, the tabernacle, the feasts, all of those things. And that's why Paul spent so much time explaining them and also explaining that they're all metaphor. Guys, remember the two mountains, but they're not two mountains. We got to remember, he said, there are two covenants or in another place, he said, remember, the two Abraham's two wives, Sarah and Hagar. But but remember, they're not two women. They're two covenants. See, they're they're metaphors. See, Paul agrees with Jesus. And he had Jesus teaching him for years what this all means. So, in context of all that, that is how we have to come to Holy Week. You have yeah, to have yeah. all the pictures and all the stories and all the metaphors in your mind of what this is all about what it's pointing to and that this what is this suppers that they eat for this week when they are they've gotten rid of yeast and they're eating the pure bread of life which jesus and paul points out is christ you're eating christ all week hey and bob then, i, yes. I want to get back to the the yeast and sin and communion but kelly has a question okay you're muted kelly 
JK, not a go. question, just an observation. As someone, if we're talking about Mary, as someone who is a cradle Catholic and went to Catholic school her whole life, I was taught that we are not in awe of Mary. We, are, we revere her. And there's, there's a difference between those two words. Um, and it doesn't come from Jesus on the cross saying, behold your mother. It comes from the angel Gabriel saying, our reverence of Mary and our elevation of Mary comes from the angel Gabriel saying, you are, you are, high, you are blessed and highly favored to be the mother of our Lord. I just wanted to throw that out. That's what sure. I thought. I, I listened to one of the, again, I keep myself listening to lots of different things all the time. And I, I have, there's a, there's a Catholic radio station here. Um, 103 points. I don't remember what it is. It's on my, my presets. And I listen to it all the time. Listen to some of their apologetics and these different things. And so I just get some of these things where they're, they did a whole thing on, on Mary, an hour long teaching mm -hmm. these two theologians and they shop, talk about all kinds of stuff. And, um, that was just one of the, uh, points that of reference that I got. And again, it wasn't about the, the awe. I was just saying that word behold. Yeah. Is that what we are to do is to stand in awe of, but not, and then I was just saying, but not in the same way that again, some religions have. So I'm not also not making a direct correlation that that is where they get it. Oh, um, I see. It was just that I wanted to clarify when I was saying that, that I wasn't going as far as to say that, Jesus was advocating Mary worship. I guess that's what I was just trying to do. So, yeah. okay. Well, so you've you know set up. Bob? It's actually a good example of how, um, you know, how these 53,000 different denominations come to their understandings. Right. Right. You know, right. Because exactly. They, they, they get of a word. little piece of the pie, yeah. get a few scriptures and then that's where they jump off and go in that direction. And that's where, again, they, they miss it. Um, and again, even going back to Jesus's example of you tithe on mint and cumin. And, and it's interesting because he actually says, and fine, if you want to do that, go for it. But what you've been doing is actually missing the weightier commands to take care of widows and orphans. So it sounds like Jesus is actually saying some scriptures way more than others, but actually what it is, is he's pointing out what they were doing as part of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because nowhere in the scripture does it ever say that you're supposed to tithe mint and cumin because tithe, per scripture, if you want to go scripture, was a live animal and a live animal only because you held a stick out and each time somebody, a family came and they had 23 sheep, they walked under a stick and then when the 10th one came, they go, that one's the Lord's. Then the, the 11, 12, 13, 14, 20, that one's the Lord's. So there'd be two, but then there'd be one, two, three. Well, you didn't take another one. So how do you get a mint or cumin to walk under a pole? So I'm just saying that's part of the thing. And again, even in our modern church, we are taking the tithe and using Old Testament scriptures, but only the only a few choice ones and missing the picture that they actually are, because that's why it also says that Jesus is our tithe. Because he's the lamb that walked 
he's the tenth lamb in a type and shadow, and he's the tithe. And again, the tithe was uh, had so many things in it because where it starts with Melchizedek, and I can't go into that, but it's like this stuff is way bigger and has much deeper roots. And until you get down and then ask the spirit, now unravel this beautiful mystery, you'll never get it. You'll never, but that's what I've been doing for decades. And I'm not saying I'm the only one with the truth because I know there's lots of other people who've seen this stuff. But it's when you don't do all of these things, go to Jesus, recognize that the entirety of the Bible is all mystery. It's all parabolic. It all points to Jesus, but it all has its foundations in the stories. As Paul said, is there any advantage? There's no Greek nor Jew, but is there any advantage? As we're talking about that at the same time, is there any advantage in being of an, an Israelite or of Jewish descent of, of the tribe of Judah, for in his case, or he was actually the tribe of Benjamin. And so Israelite, um, yes, of course, because we already have a leg up on understanding all the stories that's why I keep spending time when I come to you. I have to start there because then you can understand what Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross means because it only has me correct understanding and meaning in light of seeing all of the things that God for uh, over a thousand years was lining up. He was lining all these things up like pins and then took Jesus the bowling ball and made a strike. And we're running around in modern Christianity not understanding why the deconstructionists are going, we can't figure this out. Well, of course you can't. You're not looking at it according to the way the, the person who was responsible for its being written, Jesus, says you're supposed to understand it. If you don't take the advice of the one who wrote it, you will never get the stories straight and they won't make any sense. But when you do and you put them in their proper context, the way that Jesus, the word says that the word is supposed to be understood and stop elevating the Bible and making Jesus and God obeyance to it, which is what most of the modern church does. No, Jesus has to fit in this because they say, they literally say the Bible is the sole way that God has used to express our understanding of who he is directly as we read it directly. Uh, I'm sorry, Jesus said, everyone who came before me was a thief and a liar. Everyone who came before me didn't get it. Everyone who came before me, including Moses, didn't get to walk into the promised land, a picture of the an, age of the Anion, the, 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 the picture of our new bodies and everything. Why? Because he didn't see God properly. God never even showed him his face. All he saw at best was his backside. All right, let's let's pause there, Bob. Okay. Pause. Take a deep breath. <laughs> so, we come now to the Passover week with all of these beautiful pictures. And um so the lamb, what is the lamb? We obviously know Jesus is the lamb that's slain from before the foundation, before the foundation. Before there was anything, it was already slain. See, it's a, it was, those are things that were revealed by the spirit after the fact that, oh my gosh, it was there all along. Nobody saw it. Why? Because Paul said it was all being kept as a hidden mystery. 
so that even the ones who were writing the Old Testament didn't see it. The angels didn't see it. The watchers didn't see it. The writers didn't see it. Nobody saw it. And nobody knew what the father was like. They had glimpses, he said, but nobody until Jesus comes. And then Jesus says, now for the first time, God, the father is purely on display. When you're seeing me, you are seeing the father in his beauty, in his perfection, in his loving kindness, in his covenant keeping kindness for Jesus's namesake, the lamb slain before the foundation. So that again, this is how God chose to save us before there was anything, before he creates anything, he's already put us in the lamb. And so how are we to be revealed to the world? It's the same way. Jesus is the second Adam. Where did, where did Adam's bride come from? When he was asleep, she was removed from his side. Where does the church come from? Paul says, while Jesus slept in the tomb, we came out of his side and God made the bride, the brand new creature created in, in the same type of what the new groom is, Jesus, who has a brand new kind of body. And now we, it says, are going to receive that body. But where is bride? And so, again, these big pictures is all in that. These, these, these stories in the Old Testament about lambs and about the high priest. Again, that's another big thing. Paul said, and Jesus has become the high priest. The one who takes this blood goes in and makes the sacrifice on the altar to whom did, did we did we now realize and learn to Abel and every other person who's tried to lay claim and speak evil against you that's who the blood is for it's poured out except again Paul as Paul points out in his writings but it wasn't it was not a good enough sacrifice because it kept having to be repeated and everybody was like Will we get the next year? Will God, will the, will the earth produce for us or will it be cursed again? Because they were having better crops when nobody else was having crops. The Israelites had miraculous crops when the rest of the world, when they were doing this activity of pouring out the blood because the curse was pushed off because the blood of Abel was satiated for a year. The cry of, for blood of Abel was satiated for a year. And that's what this, that, those lambs represented. But then Paul said, but that wasn't good enough. God we have like, a question. No. Yes. Hank has a question. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see that one down there. Yeah, go Hank. Hi, that's it, okay. Um, so, Bob, can you try in like two sentences or less, um, if it's even possible? Because I, I hear... Um, and this is something that, that I've been, I kind of have a process for, for myself, um, but so the scriptures we, and the things that Jesus say are designed for us to not understand them. Um, the Bible's not, you can't approach it purely from a historical uh, perspective. Um, how the hell are we supposed to read this thing? Um, you, you listen to it or you read it 
see where it points to Jesus and then let the spirit tell you what it means or, you know, with, you know, how, how, how do, how do we get to the truth? So again, um, there's two thoughts on that. And it's, Paul talked about this in one sense, in one place, he said, you don't need any man to teach you. You have the spirit on another place though. He said, the teachers are vitally important in the church. So which is it? Well, it's a both end. What he's trying to point out is if you take the time and learn, read the whole thing and keep reading it and see, like, that's what I, when I was a kid, I started reading it and I read through it over and over and over again, starting when I was 12. And I would literally have to get a new Bible every nine or 10 months because they would literally be falling apart because I didn't read anything else for years. I just read thousands of hours of scripture. And so those stories to me when my friends were talking about football scores, I, I've never understood any of that stuff. I still don't understand sports because I spent all my time. So the stories in the Bible are literally fused in my spirit. So one of the scriptures in the New Testament says that a, a teacher who gets it is able to take and make meals from both the Old Testament and the New. And so that's one of the things that I, as a teacher... One of the, the, the spirit-led gifts mentioned in the New Testament, that's what I believe is my job, is to help people because I've already done tens of thousands of hours of study, and then I can try and give you, and listening to the spirit, asking the spirit, now I know the stories, now enlighten me, Father. What does this mean? But at the same time, you're fully capable of doing this yourself, going and spending the time, looking at it like just a story, read it again and again and again, and then ask Jesus. And so you can get bits and pieces and you can verify it for yourself. And there's also others in the church where Paul says there's these other things where there's leaders, other leaders in the church, let every word be judged according to the elders. So even like when I'm saying what I'm saying, there's other people, that's part of why I do what things the way I do, like on Daily Bread, I've got eight teachers in that list like at some big churches out there that do conferences that have hundreds of theologians coming. So I am, I am making, I'm letting peer review happen, but it's part of it has to be all those things that I just mentioned. And so that is how, again, I would say, you can do it yourself, but again, that's why I'm writing Lost in Translation. And you'll, when again, it's going to take a long time to do that book, but it's going to lay all these things out as I see it, and then you can look at that and let the Spirit tell you it's bullshit or it's not. And then you can go and do the work, but you can also then listen to some teachers, and you'll be able to then more clearly go, "Wait a minute, that's he's saying that, but that's not that isn't an agreement with this story." You'll begin to go. Wait, I'm getting it. And you guys already do. I see it all the time. You guys, you know, going, oh, I remember when you said this thing in Genesis. So that means this can't be so. It's like, exactly. There you go. I think, okay. I, I think um, to sort of like bring it back to me, to my person, to like a, a person trying to interpret the Bible. I agree with, with what Bob is saying as far as like you are, you're listening to the spirit. You're also... Um, studying and picking it apart and doing all these other things. And as he was talking, the word that kept coming to my heart is discernment 
there's a thing that we have on the inside of us that I believe is, is divine called discernment. And because it's hard when you're listening to so many different teachers, I listen to a, a big long list of teachers all the time, but I also am very in tune to what my heart says and no, that doesn't feel good. Or yes, I'm going to cling on to that and chew on that. And it's just a matter of, I really think that interpretation of scripture for me goes back to um, my relationship with Holy Spirit um, and, and knowing and understanding that the spirit has been given to me for a reason. And right. that is one of the reasons exactly. to give me correct interpretation of what Jesus is saying. And it's important that we, you know, I think it's important that we listen to other teachers. We have Bob and we are, like, I listen to Malcolm Smith and I listen to Richard Rohr and I listen to some evangelical, you know, teachers and pastors as well. But I, you just have to get to the point where you can spit out what you don't need and ingest what you do. Right. And, and know that that's okay. I don't think anyone, I don't think any one of us is going to ever have the the actual total truth interpretation. I think what we're doing is interpreting it by the spirit and with teachers. And by doing that, we're building up the body and we're, we're getting everybody to that that place of truth that is setting us free into our identity. And and that's just I just feel like that's just going to keep happening. Right. Like it's just interpretation is going to be constant. And there may be seasons in life where you're like, I'm not, I just don't have it in me to do right now. And I think that's okay. Listen to that because that might be a time when you're, you know, the spirit is doing a different kind of work on the inside of you. So pay attention to that. I don't think it's a bad thing if we're at a place in life or at a season in life where we're like, I just, the Bible is just not, I don't have that, that like, oh, I can't wait to read it today right now. I don't have that right now. And I think that's okay. Just listen, just be listening. I, I just want to say, I think I agree that it's both and, and all of it together all the time. <laughs> it's like developmentally appropriate, right? We don't, we're not born knowing everything like exactly we over time, over years. And we do that in our faith. We, yeah, we have different things illuminated at different times of our life and we're all kind of walking each other home. Right. And so yeah. we, we look at it and we go, Oh, so I'm not a, a wicked sinner from birth needing right. to like throw myself on the floor every day and repent yeah. until I earn the love of God. Like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm actually loved. And we share that with each other, right? And then yeah. like layer upon layer developmentally, we just continue to develop until we get to return, return, you know, to, return to spirit. The piece in the beginning when we were talking, the piece about... Um, communion and not taking communion if you're not in a right place because you're drinking and eating damnation upon yourself. Mm-hmm. When I first started ministry in Tucson, um, that was something that my pastor drilled into me. Like you do not take communion if your heart is not right. Well, what the hell does that mean? Mm-hmm. My heart isn't right. That's does what that I mean. I'm glad you brought that. You up. want to know what the Greek does says? Does that mean I'm not okay with God? Does that mean I'm I can't take communion because I cussed yesterday? Does that mean I can't take communion because I had a bad thought this morning? What I mean, what does that mean? So for years, I struggled with that. For years, I didn't take communion. There were so many times when, 
I didn't take communion because, well, I, I didn't have a good morning or I fought with my spouse or I had a bad thought about someone or whatever it might be. I didn't pray this morning. And but then you don't take communion and then everybody's watching you and wants to know why you didn't take communion. So it's this vicious, this vicious cycle. You want to know what the Greek says about that? Yeah, I do want to know. It's yeah. beautiful. So again, all things in context. So many of these scriptures are taken out of their context and then you don't, you're missing what the writer's trying to say. So Paul had been setting up. The whole point is he's setting up Communion is our, Jesus institutes it just before he goes and then pours his own blood out, right? So he's saying, I'm about to do these things. My body's about to be broken, hence the broken body, which again had literal stripes on it the way they would prepare it. So it was all had been for centuries, a picture of the broken striped body of Jesus so that's the taking of punishment, all the demands that the law ever made. And then his blood, he said, so that was the first half of it. So all the demands of Abel are met in the first part, the eating of the body. The blood is also this satiation of the ground, but also Jesus said, this is the new, and again, the word new there is the same word new as our new bodies, it's new of a different kind. This is a brand new covenant, a kind that's never happened before. So, and it's based in love and it's all centered in this one is taking the punishment for everybody. Making, making you, Paul said, righteous. If the first Adam created passed on a, you could think of it as a genetic abnormality towards a bent to being separated from God. How much more, he said, does this one make men righteous? You're now, and again, that word righteous is a covenant term, meaning you're in communion with nothing between you and the Father. That's then, he says in context with that, don't ever think about yourself as not one made righteous. Because if you do, and you forget that, when you're taking the communion, you're actually, it's gonna, you're gonna lost its meaning. You're not gonna do what Jesus said, do it remembering me and what I'm about to do, which is making you righteous, making you the beloved, making you have free access to the Father because all the demands for separation by Adam and Abel and all the other liars that gave you all these other things to keep you from the Father are all paid now. So now you are a righteous one. So Paul says, so when you're taking communion, always keep remembering you're righteous. Otherwise, what is what are you left with? This other place where you're just one subject to the curses of the earth and you're damned. Do you see how simple that is? So he's just saying you're eating and drinking condemnation to yourself because that's all that will be left if you're not remembering Jesus made you righteous. Woohoo! So when you're taking communion, you're like, this is a constant reminder. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us this that literally every time I even, he said, as often as you do this, and again, it's one of the reasons I love to say it's a meal. 
because it's every time I eat, anytime I'm putting something in my mouth, I literally am thinking, I get to enjoy this as a beloved child because Jesus has declared and made me in right standing and covenant with nothing between me and the Father forever and ever. Amen. So I'll never have, I can't drink the condemnation. I don't let the things of the world and the things people say ever condemn me because they're, they're lies. We have a couple questions. Yeah, got two of them. Kelly, go ahead. Mine is not a question. It's just an observation. And I feel like we've gone on, on to three more subjects since, um, since I had this thought. So let me, and my computer's not acting right. So let me make sure, let me think about what I'm trying to say. When we're talking about like how we read scripture and I, you know, we're talking Bob, like you were talking about, you know, we, we listen to the Holy Spirit and to teachers and, and not all of our teachers are biblical teachers. Right. So like for me, somebody who um, has spent her entire professional life working with children under stress, developmental theory teachers are a big thing in my life and world. And Eric Erickson, um, who is a child development theorist, his last stage of childhood development is called identity versus role confusion. And that like popped into my mind, Bob, when you were talking about teachers and the way we read scripture. And I can remember in the beginning of my deconstruction journey in that, you know, if I'm wrong on the issue of homosexuality, what else is wrong in this book? And I didn't even want to open it because my entire identity was wrapped up in what I had been taught about it, right? So instead of having a healthy spiritual identity, I was actually in what the child development world would call role confusion. And so that all had to be unraveled. And then as I began to look at everything, because what I was reading and what the Holy Spirit was teaching me in scripture, so not what I was learning from from teaching, but what the Holy Spirit was teaching me in scripture was not lining up with what I saw. You know, it was not lining up with, with um, the treatment that I saw of the LGBTQ population or any marginalized population. My eyes were just closed to it until I started experiencing it, right? And so it took that long time. And when I began to look at everything, everything through the lens of love, that's when I started wanting to open my Bible again. And just like Heidi said, you know, it's okay to have those times where you don't want to be like, I can't wait to open my Bible. I mean, I used to be like the energizer bunny with, with my Bible. Like I couldn't, I could not wait to open my eyes and open that word. It was a first, it, it was right by my bed and it was the first thing I looked at in the morning. Um, and I missed it and I grieved it and it's starting to slowly come back. And now that I can see things through a lens of love, it's the excitement is, is different. I don't, I don't know if that even makes sense, but it does. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I, mean, I can totally relate to what you're saying, Kelly, about yeah. having a season of time where you didn't even really want to pick it up. Yeah. And and then going back into a time because you're looking at it through a different lens because your heart is in a different place. Yep. And and you are you're in a relationship with God differently than what you were before. 
what you said about what the Holy Spirit was teaching you and what you were hearing are two different things. So different. That that's the discernment piece. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, the last before house church, the ministry that I was a part of before that, that's what I started experiencing consistently was that what I was hearing from the pulpit was Mm -hmm. not resonating with what the spirit was telling me inside of my heart. And so it made me take a deeper look. And, and I think when we're going through that process of, um, when we get fixated on something, everything else just kind of falls away a little bit. And Mm -hmm. then, and then that's the only thing that we're focused on. And so I think for some of us, when we're going through that process of rebuilding our faith and, and, deconstructing or reconstructing, however you want to say it. Um, it, I think it's okay to go through a period of time where we're not like the Bible is not the thing that we're picking up every single day because we have to, it's almost like, um, the filter has to start working inside of us and we have to start, we have to get rid of some of the confusion and the angst and the, what, what if, and what about, and this is what I've always believed. We have to allow that stuff to be washed out of us before we can get back to it and really be able to read it and look at it with love and discernment and spirit interpretation and, and, and go, okay, this is it. This is exactly, this is it. This is what I, what I, this is right for me. This feels good. And And you know what else I just thought of too, as you were talking to Heidi and then, cause I know Hank has a question, but I stare at this screen and I think about the sweet man that's upstairs working in my house. And I think about these two beautiful men that I'm staring at on the screen and the even more beautiful man that I sleep with every night. Um, They are three white men, right? they represent anything but the patriarchy that I was taught as a, as a child and a young woman, they represent love. These three men represent love. And so, Oh, I could cry y'all. But like Bob and Hank, when I stare at the two of you, you are teachers, not only by your words, but by your actions and by your love. And that, I think that is also the other way that we need to look at scripture. You know, the people who are in there had lives and stories and, and experiences. And if we can almost look through that lens too, I think we could learn a lot. Thanks, gentlemen. Love you both. (laughs) Good good place. Because we do have a hard stop at nine today. So, all right, I'll stop the recording.